Hey, it's Brian, and you're listening to another edition of Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories spin-off series, BS Conversations. Bedtime Story Conversations. It's our chance to set aside the scripts and have a freeform conversation with the folks who are making the magic happen. Uh, so usually musicians, entertainers of some sort, uh, and in the case of today, we're talking to a writer. Andy Fry has written for Rolling Stone. He's written for ESPN. Uh, currently, he writes about sports business for Forbes. But over his career, he's interviewed hundreds of athletes and rock stars. And among the bands and solo artists that he's spent time with, Smashing Pumpkins, Oasis, Morrissey, Jimmy Eat World, Rage Against the Machine, and Alice in Chains. Now, beyond all that... This book that he just wrote is called 90 Days in the 90s, a rock and roll time travel story. And yeah, it says, if you went back to the 90s and got to see all that music again, would you even want to leave? And so we were thrilled to get to sit down with Andy Fry and talk a little bit about his book and about the rock and roll rumors that he's encountered during his career and the things that he likes. So check it out. It's another edition of Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories BS Conversations. Thanks for listening, and keep telling stories. As soon as I heard the concept of this book, I was like, hell yeah. The idea for the book, it was... You know, we all grew up, well, I think the three of us grew up watching some the classic time travel movies if we didn't read the books, you know, like uh, Back to the Future and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures. Really oh, yeah. great. Movies in general, but time travel, there's, there's always some big thing that they got to do. There's always got to be like Marty McFly is going to make his parents meet so he doesn't not exist. Right, right. 11, 2263 about um, right. basically the guy goes back in time to try to prevent JFK from getting assassinated. And then all this other stuff that changed because of that is not good. So, but I've always thought about like, if you could time travel, that, you know, you and I would probably just do some things that we might want to do again. But a lot of it would probably be mundane. Yeah, the, sta- the stakes would be lower. Your point being that, you yeah. know, the stakes are always high in these stories. But but if we actually had that thing, it'd be like, oh, let's go back to that one night where we got real drunk and went to Waffle House. and uh, Yeah, it was, it was that and... and um, you know, it's probably a thought that I've had a bunch of times before, like, I'm listening to music and wouldn't it be great to go back and see this band? And and so probably like six years ago right now, I was um, up in Traverse City, Michigan. I was kind of went for a walk. I was listening to some 90s playlists I made on Spotify. And I, again, I had that, like, wouldn't it be great to go back and see this band or do this thought? And for whatever reason, I'm, like, standing in there, like, taking notes on my my crappy android and right oh, here's another idea and here's another idea. And so it was a matter of kind of spending some time not just brain dumping what I know, but also kind of becoming a local. So I started writing just enough words to make something of it. Um, I realized that I had created this little like universe back in the nineties and these characters I wanted to hang out with. So every day when I would write for two or three hours, at least a couple times a week, I was going back to the nineties to hang out with Darby and her friends and go to see a show. And that made it easier to write. It wasn't like, Oh crap, I got to write 800 words this week. It was, let me go back and rework that scene or, you know, I thought of another idea that would work in, you know, this yada yada thing, you know, whatever. It was just kind of like a building based on kind of going back and being a local is how I would put it. I wanted that vibe and that ethic. I think it's kind of a 90s pop culture ethic. It feels Gen Xy the whole idea. So Darby's the main character. I want to, let's real quick talk about the story. You know, it takes place in the present or maybe like last summer. Darby's Wall Street career that she sold out for is kind of falling apart. 
And so it was a relationship in New York. So she moves back to Chicago after her favorite uncle uh, died. Her favorite uncle died in Wilderness Record Store. And she kind of feels bad that she, you know, she lost touch with the, her favorite uncle, who she had connection to is about music. He's one of the factors of why she's such a music fan, becomes a music fan again. Uh, if you look at the cover of the book, you see a train. So it looks like the uh, the L trains we have, or we call them in Chicago. So she's hearing rumors about the Gray Line, which is this this train in Chicago that you know, if it exists, takes you back to the past. And eventually, she finds out there's a, a Gray Line stop, a subway stop under a record store, and decides to go back to 1996 to start. So if you're curious about the 90s, maybe you don't know that much about music, and it, it sounds interesting, and you like time travel, this is another place you can go with the character and kind of hanging and rolling with the characters and doing what they do. And I think that's part of the fun of it. Yeah, Andy's book's called 90 Days in the 90s, a rock and roll time travel story, by the way. As a writer, the, the, yeah. when you switch time periods and you go back to the 90s, you lose all the technology, right? Does that make it easier or harder when you're telling a story and, and now you don't have cell phones as a device? I, well, I, I think to me it made it easier. I kind of set some rules before I even set the, like wrote the rules and decided how I was going to do it. And I think there's a scene where there's a mis- misunderstanding with the girl she's gotten back together with because like she emailed her back there. They kind of thought about having a date, but she wasn't in the office to receive that email. So then she thought, you know, the other person thought she got blown off. So there's, there's like that. Like I, I can't even imagine with my parents, like, if I'm at a play date in 1975 that they had to like pick me up a certain time or that they would call that house and the person might not pick up. Yeah. There'd be a busy signal like yeah. that. I don't even think about that anymore. <laughs> uh, so there's those things. There's some limitations that, that make it easier to work with your writing story. Like you, you don't get overwhelmed with technology. So you've talked a lot about how rock and roll plays a big part in the book. Uh, and I know you have a, a rock and roll history as a, as a writer as well. But what's your rock and roll origin story? Like what made you fall in love with rock and roll back in your personal life? Yeah, I, I grew up in a suburban household and probably listened to whatever, whatever was on the radio. And somewhere, I think I wanted to play guitar. I don't know why I wanted to play guitar, but I picked up a guitar. I think I got one from like my godfather and my uncle, and it was acoustic, and I wanted an electric, so I got electric for my birthday in eighth grade when I was 14. This was a real thing, right? Like, I had access to an acoustic, too, and it was, like, not good enough. So my grandmother yeah, bought me a Fender Squire. Yeah, like, 100%. Was, yeah, being in a band or playing guitar makes you cooler as soon as, as, soon as you get it, no matter who you yeah, are. So no. I think there's some of that. So I, I was into Led Zeppelin, and I started, like, listening to Led Zeppelin. So my 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 cool aunt, my Aunt Martha, knew that or heard about this. And uh, one day in the middle of summer, 1985, I think, a big boxer I was from Ohio and she had taped all of her Led Zeppelin albums that she had. Oh, hell which yeah. I think at that time was, I think she had only like one up through the song remains the same. She taped them for you. Yeah. She taped, she's done boxing. You have, I don't know how oh, much of my so High five to that aunt. How, how sweet is that? shit? That's <laughs> yeah. So um, that's why uncle Martin is uncle Martin. Cause you know, he's the names are kind of similar. Kind of flipped into punk and alternative. Uh, the flip side I always tell people about is that 
So I had a lot of friends in high school. A lot of them had older brothers and sisters in college. So they all had college radio stations and they knew like, um, they, you know, they'd bring in like tapes for Jane's Addiction and the Smiths and Husker Du. And I remember giving this, my friend Andy Newman, a, a, like a double-sided memory. So I'm like, just whatever, just whatever your older brother, Kurt, is bringing home, from, just tape some of that. <laughs> and then about two weeks later, he gave me, on one side was the Smiths Meet His Murder. Uh, and the other side was Couscous Candy Apple Gray. And I listened to it until the, the tape pretty much yeah. melted down. We talk a lot about rock and roll rumors, and I think there's, you know, you find what you what gets you into rock and roll, and then once you're into rock and roll, I think everybody has this rock and roll rumor that they discover at a young age that sort of drives them farther into it. Is there, is there one particular rock and roll mythology or story that you heard growing up that, that always stuck with you? You know, for as much as we, like, love James Brown and Chuck Berry, I've, I've heard just generally that those guys were... You know, I mean, they had hard work ethic, but they're yeah, like yeah, they're jerks, terrible whatever. people. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a really interesting yeah, so one. Much- you bring up a really good point, right? Like yeah. this idea of the rock and roll mythology of the asshole performer. And like yeah. when when you because if you're a kid of a certain ilk, you know, that's bad behavior, right? You've been taught like this is not how we behave. But you see someone creating something that people are lauding who are yeah. basically getting away with this shit. There's one story. So I, I heard this a, a friend of mine who was taking like the one history of pop culture class when I went to Miami university. So there's a story about miles Davis. Uh, I think takes place in the late sixties when he's like kind of full in on you know, snorting cocaine. Oh, or yeah. Things got real bad. Sports. Yeah. He's in Manhattan. It's like a Sunday night. I, I, I can't say that. I know it's firsthand. This is just the, the, the story. I love. This is how about. it works. You don't know it yeah, firsthand, okay, right? Keep so, going. I'll, I'll so I want to say it's like 1968. He's in the car with like some girl he's kind of dating or hooking up, but then there's snow outside and they're having an argument and he drops her off somewhere. She shuts the door and there's snow in the front of his Lamborghini. So he immediately thinks it's more cocaine. Like she planted cocaine in his car. And he freaks out. <laughs> um, so in the middle of like whatever Avenue, I don't know where he was, you know, let's just say it's like upper Sixth Avenue or something. He parks his Lamborghini in the middle of the street on the Sunday night at like eight o'clock. Because he thinks she's planted drugs on him, runs into some random building, goes up to like the top floor, and hangs out for four hours. And then when he, when he comes down a bit, he, he comes out of the building, and this Lamborghini is still there with the blinkers on. Now I know that this story was part of an interview that Miles Davis told somebody. I think maybe some somebody who was a journalist who wasn't like Life Magazine necessarily was like, "Tell us about like what it's like to be on." drugs and he gave him that story and then it was like, <laughs> well you, you know that like, yeah was, nobody messed with the lamborghini that was parked in the middle of you know not like like where the median is in the middle of this major street in manhattan
that's the Lamborghini he totals later. In 72, oh, really? in New York, he totals that thing. Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, and that's that's the other famous thing about I would love Miles to see, I mean, could be, I'm not, I don't know what the year was. It, it could be the same night. I don't yeah. know. Maybe that's the second half of the story that he, when he wasn't high on cocaine, he crashed his car. <laughs> That's kind of how it goes rock and roll. Right? I mean, you, you bring up another great thing, right? It's like journalists hearing stories from rock and rollers. And I know you've done this. You've talked to you know some of our guiding lights on this show, right? Big names. Has there ever been a moment where you're on the other side of the table listening to a story and you just want to call bullshit? Is there a story you've been told where you're just like, that can't be true? Not, I mean, not really. I mean, the thing is, like, I, I think there's a difference between aging rock stars, which is who I've mostly interviewed, and pop stars and people who are kind sure. of more. So sure. when you're talking to Noel Gallagher, it's a phone call before sound check and he's in Detroit. Like he's he's not there to impress me. He doesn't give a shit who I am. Right. Talking, I was actually at a sporting. Like, they moved time me. I was at a sporting uh, event. I was in a roller derby match. I was covering in Chicago, USC Pavilion. And I had to step outside, and it was like windy as hell. So I've got like my recorder up against my phone, and I'm like trying to find a place where, like, stuffed in the corner between these two buildings. And um, yeah, so I knew he's a Manchester City fan. I remember that game. Um, Man City was down three nothing to Sunderland. They came back and tied it. So we talked about that, and I was, I was like, yeah, they could win the championship. He was pretty. That was when they won the championship six weeks later, by the way. But he was kind of negative about it. He's like, well, it would have been great. I don't think we're going to do it. So I, I think he was just kind of petered out there. And I, I pivoted. I was like, well, so you're in America a lot. Like, do you follow any of the sports here? The flip side. So he was also like, he had a couple of music videos that all had like the sports hook, which I could talk about. But so I asked about American sports and he's like, yeah, I don't understand basketball. I don't understand baseball. You know, hockey, I don't know, but I, I effing love the NFL. And I was like, well, tell me about that. Do you have a team? I think what it was, like, he basically, like, you know, he's in the UK. He's not doing drugs anymore in, in 2011, <laughs> but he still stays up till 3 or 4 in the morning because he's still a rock star. And right what's on. on TV? The NFL. It's, you know, he's an Englishman. Right. There's these Americans with, you know, brightly colored helmets and pads smashing into each other over and over again for, you know, basically a better part of two and a half hours with commercials. And I think that drew him in. Yeah, I saw I saw a quote from him from my article that I wrote with him where he said he loved the NFL on Brainy quote. <laughs> a couple of years later, yeah, there's my quote from like you know, that he loves that he you know he's in the in, in the NFL. I thought, well, that's, that was kind of cool. I don't know if this is true because I've not verified it, but I, I did hear that the Prince Harry book that came out recently has yeah. like him quoting Brainy quote in it, like just like, yes, <laughs> that is true. There is a brainy. There is a bra- and the citation, <laughs> the, brainy quote? the Prince Harry uh, cited brainy quote. So I'm I just mean, saying, he, Andy, big things could be on the horizon for you. Really well, big so, things. 
I used to work, so I wrote for ESPN for six years, mostly covering, like, I, for a while I covered that, like, aging sports, uh, for aging rock stars talk about their sports anchorings, cover some extreme sports. I wrote for an editor, I'm not going to say his name, but he was this, this editor that I wrote for kind of indirectly who he got trolled by Deadspin all the time for oh, stuff yeah, he would yeah, do. Yeah. And this, this editor had a habit of like being a lazy writer. And he would actually, like there were like from the Mike Tyson Wikipedia page, there's a paragraph from that page that ends up in an article that he wrote. <laughs> so, I don't know if you saw, was, I, I don't know if you saw cocaine bear, but it opens with a, uh, a, a whole bunch of facts about bears. And then it, it says the citation is, well, no, I didn't, I didn't see it, but I, so before that, I've been following Scott Cease, the uh, the smart-ass comic guy with the mustache, yeah. uh, for a year. Yeah, years. He's, he's the guy who's known as the the angry guy, Kia guy. Yeah. So I, I bought tickets, and then he's on stage. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm in this movie called Co- Cocaine Bar that's coming out this week. Go see it. I was like, I think I heard it. Yeah. Yeah, but he's not the IKEA guy in the movie, so no, he's really uh, funny in the like yeah, he's he's briefly in it, and of course, no, you know, no real spoiler here, he gets killed. It, uh, but it's yeah, very it funny. was it was it was great. I fell asleep so many times. <laughs> I don't know how many times I fell asleep because I was asleep, and it was my idea to get a bunch of guys together to go hit a bar and then go watch Cocaine Bear, which I then fell asleep. It does open with Jane by Jefferson Starship, which is a fucking underrated Jefferson Starship song. Gallery's High Flying Birds, I think, is named after a Jefferson airplane song. I yeah. Think. What's next for you? Uh, you know, you've you've got this book. Are you working on another project? Yeah, I mean, so right now I'm still writing for Forbes. I've got to interview Tony Hawk about two weeks ago. Oh, I was hell just yeah. at the Miami Grand Prix, and um, so I've got a, an idea I've been working on called a Chip on Both Shoulders. It's about, it's about the first woman who makes it in Major League. Oh, really? Nice. Uh, as a player. Yeah, so for as much as 90 Days and Nights was deep cut about music, you know, this book is going to be pretty deep cut baseball. Nice. And um, just started to work on that. So, I mean, it's it's the beginning stages, but I've had this idea for a while and took a little bit of a break after spending five years writing 90 Days in the 90s and ready to go back and put my nose to the grindstone again. Awesome, dude. Hey, thanks for hanging out, man. This has been awesome. We appreciate you. Thanks. Yeah, Andy. Thanks a whole bunch. <laughs>